Today's reading is Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And then whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, 
Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a head on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Stacy and Eric, for uh, that reading. And good morning to all of you. Uh, it's wonderful to be here, wonderful to see all of you. Uh, my name is Jonathan, and I've been at this church for a, a number of years, uh, never preached, <laughs> uh, but here I am, uh, uh, blessings to Lou as he's off uh, preaching. Uh, at any rate, it's a great honor to be with you and uh, a great honor to uh, think through this text with you this morning. Uh, we're currently in a series called Living as a Creative Minority, in which we're focusing on the book of Daniel. Uh, today we continue this series by delving into the third chapter of the book, uh, which was just read to us uh, this morning. We're just continuing the same series uh, that that Lou started the last few weeks. Our story for today is a very famous story. Uh, It's one of those Bible stories that still circulates through the popular imagination in the Western world, I think. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego show up fairly often in pop culture. They show up in music. Uh, I put this one in there for my wife, uh, for those of you who are Beastie Boys fans. Uh, Bob Marley, Johnny Cash, Louis Armstrong, it shows up a lot in our, in our various art forms. Shows up in very famous texts in the Western world, uh, Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, Letter from Birmingham Jail, and so forth. It, it is something that is in our popular imagination and shaping, shaping it in one way or another. And one of the reasons for this circulation is that it's a Sunday school story. Um, perhaps like you, I first learned this story, uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Sunday school, and perhaps uh, uh, you did as well, and perhaps you haven't really revisited the story much since then. It, it often gets sort of uh, stuck <laughs> in Sunday school form. The emphasis uh, in Sunday school is almost always placed on the dramatic moment at the end of the story when the three men are delivered from the fire. 
And the message is usually something along the lines of, don't give in to peer pressure. If you remain faithful when threatened with the fire of social ridicule, God will deliver you from it. Uh, I mean, that's more or less the message of the VeggieTales uh, take on it. A lesson in peer pressure. Now, that might be a, a fine way of making this story digestible for young people. But it's a somewhat thin reading of the text. And as with all of our scriptural reading, we need to be careful that the text doesn't get cemented in our theological imaginations in its thin Sunday school form. This is, in fact, not a quaint children's story at all. It is an intensely political story. And its political edges, I think, if we read closely, are still very sharp today. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to give a political sermon this morning, uh, and I certainly don't want to engage in partisan American politics from the pulpit, but I do want to attend to the text uh, this morning. I want to read it closely. I want to recognize with you all that it is a work of political theology. That is primarily what it's doing, I think, and see if we can bring the implications of the passage into sharper relief. Implications that each of us need to wrestle with uh, for ourselves um, and uh, wrestle with in probably smaller venues um, and more personal conversations. Uh, so with that, if you'd open with me to Daniel 3, uh, we'll dive in and we're going we're gonna to read together. Uh, I think it should be page 739 in the blue Bibles underneath your seats if, if that's helpful. Lou has already uh, set the stage for this passage very well in previous sermons. The text places us in Babylon. Here's an image that's kind of an artistic reconstruction of the city of Babylon, one of the most powerful city-states on earth at the time. So beginning in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and six cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So what we have here from the beginning is a giant statue. Giant. Uh, 60 cubits. I always wonder, why in English translations do we translate to cubits? Like, what is a cubit? Like, who uses cubit? Uh, 60 cubits is about 90 feet tall. So this is a, a, a very a huge statue. I mean, what is, what is the size of this, the height of this sanctuary? Less than 90 feet, right? Uh, I mean, this is a massive, I guess if I'm approximately six foot tall, it'd be 15 of me, <laughs> more than 15. Um, so it's a massive statue, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, and it's gold. Certainly not solid gold, but gilded or overlaid in gold, gleaming with the golden light of the sun. It's an image that was meant to radiate glory, uh, sacredness, opulence, and massive strength. Uh, Bible scholars and archaeologists believe that the plain near Dura uh, that, it, that the image was set up on is probably actually a, a rampart, a flat area on the top of the walls of Babylon. Um, so this is a, a statue that would have just towered over uh, the city. Um, 
either facing inward toward the city or maybe outward, um, and probably in some way or another oriented toward or identified with the rising sun, the image of gold uh, that uh, represents the sun. So you have a civic. It is, it is uh, oriented toward the city, and it is oriented toward the sun. It has civic and cosmic uh, implications to it. And this kind of colossal statue is certainly not unusual in the ancient world. Centuries earlier, the Egyptians made many colossal statues, including this one of Ramses II, who may or may not be the pharaoh of the Exodus. Um, uh, Perhaps you're familiar with the Colossus of Rhodes, a huge statue of Helios, the sun god, uh, which stood at the entrance to the harbor at Rhodes, Uh, It's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was said to have been about 105 feet tall, uh, so it's about 10, 15 uh, feet taller than uh, Nebuchadnezzar's image. It no longer exists. It fell down in an earthquake. There are two different representations there on the screen. Uh, Some people think that the the statue is actually straddling the entrance uh, to the uh, harbor. That's almost certainly not true, but uh, there you go. Um, If you've traveled to Rome, perhaps you're familiar that there was a colossal statue of Nero uh, depicted as the sun god. In fact, the colloquial name that we have for the Flavian Amphitheater is the Colosseum, named after the Colossus uh, of Nero, the sun, uh, as sun god that stood next to it. So there you get a few representations of it, along with uh, a coin that uh, uh, depicts it. And, of course, we're no strangers to this kind of colossus. Our own Statue of Liberty follows roughly the same ancient logic of setting up colossal images to represent the sacred ideals of the state. That's what the uh, Statue of Liberty is meant to do. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's image is meant to do. Now, in drawing the comparison between the Statue of Liberty and Nebuchadnezzar's image, I don't want to equate the content of these statues. Uh, I think they do stand for different ideals, but we do need to recognize the structural similarities of how they function in the uh, state in which they appear. What all of these colossal images have in common is that they're meant to serve as emblems of their society's highest values. They each represent some vision of human prosperity granted through divine blessing. I think that's what all of them uh, are meant to do. And these visions then give authority and are upheld by systems of political, economic, and cultural power. So I think in order to understand this passage, we can't uh, think of Nebuchadnezzar's image as a silly thing or as something that it would be easy for you to dismiss. You have to put it in more personal terms. It is, it is Babylon's Statue of Liberty. It's Babylon's Statue of Prosperity. Uh, and I think we have to uh, kind of get inside of the story if we're going to get the gravity of the story. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so what is it an image of? What is Nebuchadnezzar's? image. Who or what is being worshipped here? Interestingly, the passage uh, doesn't tell us. 
The dimensions, 90 feet by 9 feet, indicate that it's some kind of a figure, perhaps a very slender figure if it's 10 times as tall as it is wide, or maybe it has some sort of significant pedestal, it's unclear. But who? Uh, is it the king? That's often uh, kind of assumed. Is it a god? That seems more likely. It seems sensible to interpret it in terms of the giant statue that we uh, saw last week in Daniel 2 in the king's dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, Lou discussed that last week, if you are here. Um, but we don't know what that's an image of either. Uh, all we know is that it signifies the Babylonian Empire, which, as we're told, has dominion over the entire land. It's a kingdom of massive political and economic and military power, and the, the statue represents that in Daniel 2. Most likely, for, for my money, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, uh, this statue is not an image of the king, it's an image of the Babylonian's highest god. The Greek historian Herodotus mentions a large golden image in Babylon depicting the god Bel, but Bel just means Lord. And in Babylon, Bel was Marduk, the highest god, and in, indeed the national god of Babylon. He was known as Bel Balim, Lord of Lords, or often simply as just Bel. He was considered to be the Lord of creation and history. He's responsible for the creation of human beings and so on. But it's vital to note, and this, by the way, that uh, last image was an image of Marduk or a couple images of Marduk. But it's vital to note the character of Marduk's power and authority in Babylonian thought. According to the Babylonian creation account, he creates the earth by slaying Tiamat, this uh, primordial sea dragon uh, who wreaks havoc uh, uh, in, in the world, in existence. And then Marduk goes on to uh, defeat this other god, Kingu, the ruler of destiny or history. In other words, without going into all of it, Marduk is the lord of lords because he's the winner of violent primordial war. Uh, there is violence at the basis of Babylonian uh, thought, and Marduk is the lord of lords because he wins. His claim to preeminence resides in his ability to outsmart and overpower his enemies. And one of the ways he extends his power is through the building of empire. Under Marduk's reign, humans are created to serve and expand his royal court on earth. Nebuchadnezzar, it turns out, was a very devout follower of Marduk. Uh, there are several surviving prayers to Marduk that have survived on uh, cuneiform tablets, and they're attributed to Nebuchadnezzar II, which is the Nebuchadnezzar in uh, Daniel. And they read actually very similarly to the Psalms of David. If you're up for some good but disturbing reading, uh, you can track down the prayers of Nebuchadnezzar. They're fascinating. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's very name expresses this devotion. He chose his own name as king, and it uh, means Nabu, preserve the crown, preserve the empire. 
Nabu is the god of wisdom. He's the son of Marduk. So we might just hear his name. Every time we hear his name, we might uh, hear it as wisdom of Marduk, preserve the empire, prosper the empire. In one sense, it doesn't really matter what the image in Daniel 3 was. Evidently, the author doesn't think it's important enough to tell us uh, what it's an image of. So long as we understand what it meant, it's a symbol of national, economic, and religious blessedness. It's an emblem of Babylon's primary concern for some kind of fullness of life provided by Marduk, the Lord of Lords, or Lord of all beings, as it says in one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, prayers to him. And this is why Nebuchadnezzar considers it absolutely vital that all people, all nations, pay highest respect to this emblem and serve this blessedness. Um, and uh, that's a long meditation on verse 1. Let's drop in on verse 2 here. <laughs> now, that, now that time is over, pray with me. No, no. Uh, verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors. You've heard this read, uh, uh, and it's a long uh, list. That's an ancient way of saying everyone. Everyone in positions of political power are gathered. That's what that listing means. And the reason it reiterates the listing is just to show, just to really drive it home. Everyone in political power in the empire assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. They presented themselves before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations, peoples of every language, there is a cosmic global vision here. This is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horns, uh, flute, zither, lyre, and so forth, you get another list. That's a way of saying, when the orchestra strikes up, when the symphony starts playing the national anthem, you are to pay allegiance. That's, I think, what it's saying. You must fall down and worship. The, when, the, when the orchestra starts playing, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. When we read worship, I think we tend to think of expressing love, even highest love. But when the ancients used the word worship, I think maybe it's more helpful for us to translate it allegiance. Allegiance. In other words, when the national anthem is played, you must pledge allegiance to the image. You must place your trust and hope in what it represents, contributing your labor, perhaps even your life, toward its well-being. The point here is that what we're reading about in this passage is not nearly so foreign or arcane as we might suppose. And thus, we cannot presume to just hold this story off at the safe distance of being in an irrelevant past. The lesson of the story is not simply that we should never bow down to a golden image. After all, there are relatively few of those around these days. <laughs> Though, I might say, we have television Television is a much more powerful instrument than a massive a colossal image because it can always change its appearance and you don't know you're worshiping the same God. This, okay, I'll leave that at that. 
Uh, nor is this reducible, I think, to a parable about peer pressure. What's at stake in this story is how or whether we should pay allegiance to certain visions of human flourishing and security ensured through political religious power. And that strikes close. And I think that's exactly what's going on here. Marduk gives human flourishing and gives security. And we pay pay allegiance to that in order to uh, ensure our own security and prosperity. And this kind of allegiance is serious business. Uh, Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. The furnaces in question here are brick-firing furnaces. They're kilns. They're not heating uh, instruments or something. I mean, it's the near Middle East. You don't need heat. Uh, You need bricks. Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for huge building programs in Babylon. The Great Walls, the Great Ziggurat Temple uh, of Marduk, the Hanging Gardens, and endlessly so on. Nine-tenths of all the bricks in Babylon bore the inscription of Nebuchadnezzar. He, his laborers, fired tens of millions of bricks during his reign. It's interesting to me that the punishment for refusing allegiance to the emblem uh, would result in being cast into the kilns, the brick ovens, further fueling the fires for the construction of Babylon, the prosperity of the empire, the building of empire is of utmost importance. It's precisely here that we're we're introduced to a small resistance uh, within the government officials. Uh, Beginning in verse 9, at this this time, some astrologers, which uh, we should read as um, those who have wisdom to decipher uh, the direction of history, historical and cosmic events, the smarty pants of the empire, came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. It's a good way to start. (laughs) Your majesty uh, has issued a decree and whoever does not obey it will be thrown into the kilns, a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, people in power, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Note the charges that are leveled against them. These Jews do not honor the king. They do not honor the gods, nor do they honor the image of gold. In other words, they do not honor the imperial power embodied in the king, the holy divine powers which grant blessing and authority to the empire, nor the visual symbol of this synthesis of political and divine power. So Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage. And I think we shouldn't read this as just egomania. It's probably in the mix, but it's not egomania that drives his fury. If there are people in positions of power in Babylon who do not have allegiance to Marduk and his power structure, they are a serious threat to the prosperity and blessing of Babylon. They're a threat to the theological, political well-being of of the empire. 
The colossal statue stands at the nexus of divine, political, economic, and technological blessing, and thus the refusal to pay allegiance to it, to the source of blessing, is dangerously treasonous. It's an affront to Marduk. So Nebuchadnezzar responds in verse 15. If you do not swear allegiance to the image, you'll be thrown immediately into the kilns. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? That seems to be the central question of the chapter. Who? What God can rescue you from my hand? If Nebuchadnezzar is serving the Lord of Lords, and if this Lord has already demonstrated his supremacy by conquering the surrounding kingdoms, including Assyria and Judah, laying waste to the temple in Jerusalem, then who else could these Jews possibly rely on for rescue? Who? Haven't they all been defeated? Uh, as manifested by the, the course of history. And in response to this question, the three men respond, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. It's such an odd response. Their resistance is a peaceful non-participation. There's no counter-argument that's offered, only a fairly polite statement of allegiance, trust to another power. Another power that doesn't seem to make any sense at the moment. And they say in verse 17, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to rescue us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Or it could be translated, and sometimes is, if our God whom we're serving is, he will rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And then verse 18, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or swear allegiance to the image of gold you've set up. If the first part of their response is a, a challenge to the king's notion of the highest god, the second is a, is a disarming and kind of wild response, even if God does not rescue. I mean, in, uh, to an ancient mind, that sounds bonkers. There's power underneath everything, or there's violence underneath everything. If gods are real, they have to show it by intervening. And that's the only reason you would show allegiance or trust to him. And they seem to say, even if the political power of Babylon overtakes us, even if Babylon continues to grow and thrive in the world, even if our personal prosperity totally comes to an end, This has no bearing on our reason for trusting God, nor is it any accurate means of measuring God's goodness or power or faithfulness. God isn't playing by your rules. Your power over us, in other words, over our bodies, is not ultimate power, and it's not the measure of God's power. Nebuchadnezzar's Uh, furious, and what happens next throws all of the king's political, religious calculus kind of up into the air. These three men are not saved from going into the furnace. Rather, someone totally beyond the king's control shows up in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar refers to it as a son of the gods. Uh, And 
uh, they are prevented from being consumed by the fire. Nebuchadnezzar, I think, rightly recognizes and fears divine power wherever he sees it, and so he forbids anyone talking bad about whoever this, whoever's doing this <laughs> with these three, uh, hands off, hands off of them. For no other God saves in this way. My sort of calculus of power can't account for what just happened. And then Nebuchadnezzar promotes them in the province of Babylon. I think we should avoid uh, seeing this as a simple victory or an end of the struggle. Being promoted to a higher position in Babylon does not in any way put, uh, 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 imply an end to the struggle over one's allegiances. If anything, I think it intensifies it. Um, so what are we to do with the story uh, briefly? Maybe a, a couple of takeaways. Lou has been encouraging us to see in the book of Daniel a model for creative, living as a creative minority. One, uh, a creativity that avoids separating ourselves from Babylon or the Babylonian uuh, characteristics of the culture we live in. Uh, avoids separating ourselves, but also avoids syncretism, total uh, um, absorption into it. Uh, a couple of brief observations, and then I'll end. First, it's very interesting to me that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are so deeply integrated into Babylonian society. They're well-respected, powerful, extremely well-trained members of the Babylonian elite. They want the well-being of the people of Babylon, and in their everyday lives, it seems that they're actively working toward that end. But this episode reveals that they do so for very different reasons than the Babylonian orthodoxy. As Jews, their greatest commandments are to love God, Yahweh, with all of yourself, and to love your neighbor as yourself regarding every person that they come in contact with as made in the image of God and made to care for the earth, cultivate the earth. And in this, they have tremendous commonality with the people around them and have every good reason to seek the flourishing of their neighbors. But the mandate to worship the image throws into uh, uh, relief that the reason that they... Uh, love their enemy or love their neighbors and their enemies the ways that they do is is grounded in a different allegiance uh, creative faithfulness i think demands that we keep track of why we're doing what we're doing following the one who is love allegiance is to love and that puts us in uh, a society and looks out for the well-being of that society uh, secondly quickly and then we'll we'll end with this um, the story advocates resistance to political power, unholy political power. But what kind of resistance? It's striking to me that these three men do not protest. They don't resort to violence or revolution. Rather, they resist through peaceful non-participation or participation um, with allegiance to a different set of rules. These men are fully engaged in the governmental, cultural life of Babylon, but they refuse to participate in the idolatry of Babylonian nationalism. 
The power of their response, I think, is located in their innocence, their peacefulness, their concern for the well-being of the people of Babylon, precisely as it corresponded with their resolute resistance to the powers of Babylon. Um, On on that point, I I think it's worth noting um, that for Babylon, as I mentioned, violence and power are at the root of all things. What's at the bottom of human existence? Power. I think there are, uh, maybe not all forms of secularism, but certainly some forms of secularism who essentially, that essentially holds the same view. At the bottom of human existence is power, a struggle over identity, uh, whether that is expressed in identity politics or economic uh, politics or whatever. Power is at the root of everything. The Christian resistance is based on the idea that uh, at the bottom of everything is love, is a word that existence is spoken into, is spoken into existence through a peaceful word rather than primordial violence. And that funnels, fuels, I think, a different kind of resistance, uh, uh, a, a means of resistance. Um, so uh, creative faithfulness, uh, I think, um, in, in this uh, case, uh, uh, means keeping our eye on uh, uh, the, why we're doing what we're doing um, uh, allows us to resist power and be uh, have allegiance to a different a different kind of power. Okay, I'm way over time, so I'll end there. Uh, pray with me, Father. Give us the eyes to see how you're at work in the Babylons of our world and in our own Babylons, personal Babylons, local Babylons. Please help us to see the alternative form of life and alternative forms of allegiance uh, that you call us into. Please give us the creativity to improvise faithful lives that are a blessing to others um, because you uh, first uh, blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen.